0: This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. How much do you know about material health? If you're like the vast majority of people out there, I'm going to guess that your answer is not much, and that really needs to change. I'll admit that I don't know anywhere near what I should, which is why we have a special guest on today's episode. Welcome to Episode 70, The Dirty Side of Clean Building. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to talk about material health and transparency as it pertains to the practice of architecture, what this is all about, why it's important, as well as ask the question, what is the architect's professional obligation here? To help us with today's conversation, we have invited architect, registered interior designer, lead AP, an associate at Perkins and & Will, and the most qualified person I know to discuss today's topic, Tori Wickard. Tori grew up in a small town in East Texas and followed her father's footsteps to the University of Texas at Austin and completed her professional residency program at Con Pedersen Fox in London. During her time in London and her travels abroad, She developed a keen interest in other cultures, a deep respect for the planet, and a stronger sense of interconnectedness of its inhabitants. After the passing of her mother to breast cancer in 2014, Tori has become a passionate advocate of transparency and optimization around building materials. She co-directs the Material Performance Task Force in the Dallas studio of Perkins and Will and serves on the advisory board for the American Cancer Society, North Texas area. She firmly believes, as an architect, it's her mission to creatively address challenges in the built environment, which includes consideration of environmental and human health impacts. Hi, Tori. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast.
1: Hey, guys. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Well, we're happy to have you. I know I am. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. Definitely.
2: Yeah, fabulous. Looking forward to a good conversation today.
0: Yes. You know, when I invited you on, Tori, there's a couple of people in my office that were really excited because body burden, material performance, and all this stuff, like the people that are really knowledgeable about it, they're really into it. There's a passion to it, and there's a depth of knowledge that at times can border on the profound, especially when compared to somebody who maybe isn't as informed, you know, and I'm sure when you're not informed, there's there's an obvious lack of passion that probably is in existence. So what I wanted to do when we just kind of started off on this is, you know, we have a lot to get through today, and I know you're capable of talking about this subject at great length, but we're only going to have around 45 minutes to an hour. So I'd like to start with the question about how you became so passionate about transparency and material health.
1: Yeah, well, I've been a practicing architect since 2005 is when I kind of started my career, and I was kind of just going along, enjoying my projects I was working on. And then come 2014, I got pregnant with my son Cohen. And of course, you know, you start thinking about things like what kind of paint should I use to paint the nursery? So it was kind of in the background at that point in time. But then I was going through losing my mom to breast cancer kind of simultaneously with being pregnant. And I actually lost her to breast cancer when he was seven weeks old. So that was a very difficult time in my life. And when I came back to the office after 12 weeks of maternity leave, my coworkers approached me and said, hey, we have this project type with the American Cancer Society. We think that you would be the perfect fit for it, but we understand if it's too soon. And, you know, I just looked at him and I said, absolutely, 100%. This is what I want to be doing. The program was free hotel for cancer patients. So I just thought about the experience that my mom had been going through with her cancer treatments and having to travel. And I thought this is the exact type of project that would have benefited my mom. And so initially when I started on the project, I was thinking about it in more of an experiential way, like what would my mom want to do at this facility? How would she want to interact with guests and that kind of thing? And then kind of simultaneously, when the project was starting design, I was becoming more engaged in the material performance research lab at Perkins and Will. And so I started learning some of those fundamentals. The project was pursuing the well-building standard. And so I was just learning the basics. But during the design phase of the project, I was fortunate enough to attend the Living Product Expo in Pittsburgh and hear my colleague Robin Gunther speak as the keynote speaker. And what she had to say like really shook me, really stuck with me. And then I just went all in and just learned as much as I possibly could. And that's really how I got into this.
2: So what about the talk that Robin Gunther gave? What about that it was so specific that it really motivated you to change everything?
1: She said so many things that resonated with me, but one of the things I had never really heard of was this concept of body burden. Mm -hmm. And she gave this interesting story about how she had participated in this study with the environmental working group years before. And what it was was a study to take the blood of various individuals and test what different chemicals were in their blood. And she kind of described How difficult it was to actually get involved in the group and actually get the test taken, get her blood drawn, because so many of the things that we need to draw blood, such as um, the syringes, the different plastic vials and whatnot, they all have toxic chemicals in them. So, this test was this really unique situation where they had to control all of those factors. And what they found in her blood, and I hope she doesn't mind me repeating this. But what they found in her blood amongst all kinds of different chemicals, but the one that stuck out to me most was they said she had the highest level of phthalates of any of their test participants. And she's an architect, so what she attributed that to was potentially working with all these samples, finished materials. And she flew a lot for different client meetings and presentations, and so she thought it could have had to do with her time spent on the airplane. And that just really struck me. I just thought, wow, it would be amazing to know what is in our blood and how are the things that we're surrounding our in our environment impacting the quality of our blood and the quality of our life.
2: Yeah, I can't imagine trying to take that test and keep everything clean. That's a really hard thing to even start with, like you say. Yeah. But did you have that test done or no?
1: No, I really want to. Okay. Apparently, it's pretty expensive to do.
2: Ah, gotcha. Okay, I have some questions about
0: phthalates and body burden. One, I don't even know what phthalates are. (laughs) I mean, I I I could look it up real quick. (laughs) But, Tori, can you tell us what phthalates are and why handling product samples or flying on planes might have given Robin an elevated level of phthalates?
1: Sure. So, you've probably heard the word phthalates, right? I have. Okay, and you've probably heard of BPA. I have. So the way I like to think about this as plastics are made from petroleum-based products. So in order to give plastics either rigidity or flexibility, depending on what the product needs, some chemical has to be added to a plastic. So a BPA is going to be added to make a plastic more rigid And a phthalate is going to be added to make a plastic more flexible.
0: Mm, Interesting. So how does that get into our bodies? Well,
1: you can touch it.
0: And we're absorbing it like it's, I mean, I know this makes me me look like a fool, but I never really thought about like if I touch glass, I don't worry about getting glass absorbed in my body by extension. When I touch plastic, I don't think about it either.
1: Yeah, and I can look up the year, but in year X, BPA was removed from baby bottles because the thought was that as babies were drinking from the bottles, they were absorbing the BPA into their bloodstream or digestive tract. And the same thing with, let's say, vinyl flooring, for instance. If a baby's crawling on vinyl flooring or if you're walking barefoot on vinyl flooring, you could be picking up those phthalates just from the skin to plastic contact.
0: Yeah, it was 2012 was when the FDA banned BPA from sippy cups and baby bottles for those who were passionate about their years. That's interesting. That is something that I hadn't really thought about. And I know that, you know, there's the tests that you had mentioned earlier about to determine, like, all the things that are in your system and the different chemicals. And you said that you hadn't taken that because it's expensive.
1: Yes, I would love to take it. I'm very curious.
2: Yeah, I kind of would like to take it, too. I don't want to take it at all.
1: <laughs> what? what do you think they would find?
2: Ice cream. I don't know, but it would be depressing. No, no, it wouldn't be ice cream. It'd be <laughs> beer and burgers and stuff, I guess. I don't know. What
1: would they find in yours, Bob?
2: Oh, uh, you know, probably if they tested the backside
0: of my body, it'd be my couch, probably. Because that's all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, probably flame retardants, then.
0: Yeah, they probably oh. find that. Well, you know, there's a slide. So Tori was very gracious in, in helping us to prepare for this episode. She, like, did a data dump on Andrew and I. And I hope this is a graphic that I can share, but it, it kind of really paints a picture on what the body burden is. And at first pass, it shows a woman, and it's like, oh, shampoo and nail varnish and deodorant and perfume and laundry detergent fake tan and shave. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And the thing that's really interesting about this particular graphic, because my initial reaction was, Well, other than soap and deodorant and shampoo, I don't use any of these things. But when you really start to look into it, the thing that's the crazy takeaway is like, let's just take deodorant as one of the categories. It has 32 chemicals in it. And it says like the most worrying is like aluminum, zirconium, isopropyl, propyl I don't even know how to pronounce that word. I read it all the time, but I don't ever say it. And You know, it lists side effects like organ irritation and hormone disruption. Can I tell you the number of times I've thought about those chemicals and what they're doing to me when I have applied deodorant? I can count on less than one finger. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I go, and here's a whole chart of like, I mean, every single one of these has like 30 chemicals, 26 chemicals, 24 chemicals, 16. It's like a barrage of chemicals. You leave your bedroom to get ready for your workday. You go in the bathroom and you come out carrying... 237 additional chemicals that you didn't carry into the bathroom. That's boggling to me to think about.
1: And how many times when you're eating a meal, though, are you thinking about, man, is this clogging my arteries?
0: I think about that. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah.
1: is, it's more tangible, I think. But when you're walking into a building, you're certainly not thinking about what am I being exposed to in this building And that's why I think it's important for architects to be thinking about those things, because people walking into buildings are not thinking about those things. And I hear an argument a lot, even from designers, that you're not licking the flooring, but (laughs) (laughs) let's hope not. Yeah, that's what I was
2: about to say. (laughs) That's back to those babies, right? Yeah. Under year four, that's a possibility probably, but after that, let's hope not. Okay,
1: well, you never know what happens behind closed doors. But
2: (laughs) I can guarantee structural
0: engineers are definitely licking the floor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're rubbing the concrete for sure. Yeah. (laughs) But no, somebody walking into a building has put shampoo and deodorant, you know, possibly makeup and lotion. They just ate something that was probably not great for them, if they're anything like me. And then they're walking into this building being exposed to additional chemicals. So really that's the concept of body burden is that it's the cumulative effect on your body of constant exposure to these substances and chemicals from so many different sources. And something very interesting is this study that was done by the Environmental Working Group where they tested the umbilical cord blood of newborn babies.
0: Oh God. And
1: you would think that a newborn baby has been in this very sheltered place for nine, 10 months and should have no chemicals in their blood, right? But what the tests revealed is they had a total of 287 chemicals.
0: That's not cool. No, That's terrible. it
1: is terrible. And when you look at the breakup of the chemicals, eight of those chemicals were PFCs, which in the built environment, we use those as stain repellents. So not just on upholstery, but also on curtain wall, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. things that are meant to make products resist water and stains. They found flame retardant. They found pesticides. I mean, they found all kinds of nasty stuff in the cord blood of a newborn baby. And that's just...
0: It's terrible. It's, it's sad. Terrible.
1: And we know that those particular chemicals are linked to cancer. They're toxic to the brain and nervous system. They can cause birth effects.
0: Let me get you this. So this is the thing. I have a theory. It's a working theory. So bear with me on this. <laughs> And it's the idea that you go, all right, we tested for these chemicals, and here's all 287 that they found. And let's say that they found polybrominated diphenyl ethers. Well, how many people walking around there know what that is or how they might have picked it up? Or polychlorinated naphthalenes, or whatever that word is pronounced? There's a disconnect between what these chemicals are, what they're called, and what they do. And it's the whole idea that there's a power behind knowledge, but you have to have the knowledge in a practical application to have an appreciation for what it is or what it does. And when I mean appreciation, I don't mean like, I'm so glad I have perfluorinated chemicals in my body. It's the, what does this do if I don't want that? I'm trying to think of a good way to describe it. The easiest way was I remember seeing, I try to kind of make this more of the common man kind of conversation because most people don't know what polybrominated diphenol ethers are and i'm okay with that
1: i don't know what that is
0: yeah right they tested for 46 of them
1: yeah i have to dumb it down when i'm thinking about it myself
0: yeah so you start thinking how i know we're going to get into this later because part of the our conversation today is talking about as architects what sort of obligation do we have To try to mitigate or at least make these decisions consciously. You know, I tell people in my studio all the time that I have a responsibility for is like just from a very practical standpoint, don't put placeholders into your designs or your drawings or your details. Because what will happen is you'll forget about them or you'll just never get around to it and we'll end up with a placeholder in the real world. Leave it as a gap. So at least at that point, there's a stopgap in place because someone will say, well, I don't know what this is because you didn't tell me what it is, as opposed to putting in something that's a placeholder. There's this idea of knowledge is power and you have to educate people, but there's a disconnect between what these things are called and where they show up and what products and what they do to you. And that's the thing that I think is the challenge that this whole topic as an overarching kind of issue, that's at the root of solving it, is one, obviously it's educating people, but it's also... Coming up with the way that we understand what these things are—I don't know how that is—and hopefully we're going to get into that at some point. Like if you're if you're just regular Dick and Jane, general public, and they hear this, they're like, "How is this possible? Aren't there things in place that are going to protect us from these chemicals that I don't want in my body? And I certainly don't want them through contact trace moments." So, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit.
1: That's an assumption that I had going into it is that surely there's laws and regulations in place that would protect this from happening. And nobody's arguing that, you know, chemicals play a very important role in our lives, especially with building materials. You know, they increase the performance, durability, aesthetics, efficiency, etc. We wouldn't even have a lot of building materials without chemicals. But the thing that was shocking to me when I really started digging into this is that the only law that the U.S., has that regulates the safety of toxic chemicals? It's called the Toxic Substances Control Act from one thousand nine hundred and seventy-six. A lot of people call it TOSCA. And the last time I gave this talk, I looked up how many chemicals were in the TOSCA inventory. There were about eighty-three thousand. When preparing for today, I looked and there were eighty-six thousand five hundred and fifty-seven chemicals in the inventory. When it was created back in seventy-six there were 60,000 chemicals that were grandfathered in. So when these chemicals came into the inventory, they came in without any kind of evaluation.
0: That's that's kind of crazy. And did you say they were like- <laughs> That's pretty scary. Like they're just accepted because they already existed?
1: Yeah, basically. So what, what the EPA requires regarding these chemicals in the inventory is that it's on the manufacturer to do the human health impact testing. So the EPA- requires the manufacturers to prove the negative health impacts of the chemicals in the inventory. And so that human health testing that's required, it's actually only been done on 200 of those chemicals.
0: 200 of the 86,000.
1: Yes. And only five of those chemicals have been restricted in the U.S. So those chemicals would be PCBs, CFCs, which as architects, you may or may not know, those are usually used as blowing agents for foams. They're used as refrigerants. Uh And so some of the rating systems addresses the CFCs because they deplete the ozone. Another of the chemicals is dioxin, which was one of the chemicals that came from Agent Orange. Uh Asbestos, which most people hopefully know about and actually, with asbestos, it was removed from the restricted list under the Trump administration so that it could be now more regulated for potential new uses.
0: Interesting. Hmm.
1: Yeah, crazy. And then the last of those five chemicals is hexavalent chromium. So that one was made really popular in the Aaron Brockovich movie. Right. Hmm. And that one's used like chrome furniture, for example, has hexavalent chromium in it. But the crazy thing is that the public kind of made a big stink about this. So after so much pressure, the EPA finally in 2019, which is not that long ago, proposed to designate 20 chemicals as high priority substances for risk evaluation and then 20 low priority. So they they basically have said they're going to look at 40 additional chemicals for risk evaluation and 40 chemicals. That's less than 0.25% of the entire chemical inventory.
0: Yeah, that was the thing I was going to ask you about, and I know I'm going to go look it up after the show, is the idea, so, okay, we have 86,000 and they've tested 200. Is there any idea or any consideration other than these 40 that they're going to go back and look at? Like, is there any, like, hey, if you're in, you're in, and we're only going to put these additional burdens on new chemicals moving forward. Or do you know if there's like a segment of this process that's saying, well, this group is actually going to go back and look at the things that we've already approved and make sure, because I hate to say this, but this kind of falls into the whole ignorance is bliss. I mean, not from my standpoint, not from the general public standpoint, but from the, like I'm wondering how much of the consideration is, hey, we've said that this is okay. We don't really want to go back and expose ourselves by saying, no, in fact, it's actually not okay. That might not be the way that they think about it. I'd hope that that's not the way that they're thinking about it. But do they go back and look at chemicals that they've previously approved and and say, hey, we got this wrong?
1: I don't think they do without a huge public outcry, honestly. And one thing I've learned getting into this is that the American Chemistry Council is a huge lobbying group. They control a lot of what's happening here. So I don't quote me on this, but I think the last time I looked, they were a larger lobbying group than the tobacco lobbyists.
2: Wow.
0: Well, they're definitely working in the shadows then, right? Because nobody's yeah. heard of well, them.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. The last time I attended Green Build, they were actually there kind of front and center trying to dispel what...
2: <laughs> went over the masses.
1: Yeah, went over the masses. It was pretty interesting. Yeah.
2: That is interesting. Yeah, I would imagine it's all sort of financially based along with that idea of saying, oops, we let something in that we shouldn't, it's also it's a great deal of money and expenditure to go back and test all these things and go through sixty some odd thousand or eighty some odd thousand of those chemicals and right and that's probably like one of the bigger issues as well that keeps it from happening.
1: Absolutely. That's that's why the EPA puts it back on the manufacturers and mm-hmm. says the manufacturer needs to show what kind of risk the chemical has.
2: But now is that for all 86,000 or is that just for the new ones that come in? I don't know. Hmm.
0: Well, from what I've seen, it looks like it's just the new ones that are coming in or if there's a modification to an existing one.
1: So my understanding is the 60,000 that were originally. originally in in 1976 when Tosca was enacted, those were grandfathered in. Yeah. And then people can register. I mean, if you look at the inventory, it changes you know, I think I look at it like quarterly just to kind of see how it's growing and it changes. It grows. I mean, the last time I looked a couple months ago, it was at 83,000 and now it's at 86 something. New chemicals are added daily.
0: Yeah. And we know that the new burden is placed on those new ones, but we kind of hit a nice fork in the road. And it had to do with like the manufacturing of the chemicals and, and the sort of... Just the act of making these, we're talking about them like they exist, like you just snap your fingers and exist. But there's a manufacturing process that has its own issues that fall into this whole kind of chain from beginning to end that happens. And it's a concept that's described as like fence line communities. And when we make this stuff, what happens to our environment just through the act of making it? And you're the one that kind of turned me on to the idea of like what a fence line community is. You want to talk about that for a minute?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to talk about because many people just think of the risk through exposure to the chemical, you know, whether they're in the building or they're wearing deodorant or whatever. But yes, there is absolutely a risk in the manufacture of these chemicals. There's a number of what we call fence line communities throughout the United States. I mean, just if you Google it, tons of things will pop up, tons of examples. But the area along the Mississippi River from Baton Rouge all the way down to New Orleans. As many people probably know, this is where a lot of the petrochemicals are manufactured in the United States. So there's actually this very interesting graphic that if you want to look it up, it's called mapping the cancer corridor along Louisiana's Gulf Coast. And so what this graphic shows is all these different manufacturers producing petrochemicals So you've got Marathon and Chevron, ConocoPhillips, et cetera. So all of these big name players. And this entire area is known as Cancer Alley because it has the highest incident rate of cancer in the United States. And it's astonishing when you look at this graphic to see how many of these communities have these manufacturing facilities along the Mississippi River.
0: Yeah, we'll make sure that we put a link to not only that map, the Cancer Corridor, along Louisiana's Gulf Coast, but we'll include a graphic for kind of a snapshot of what it looks like. You know, I look at all the the petrochemical plants that are kind of along that area, but the question for you, how does this relate to what we're specifying in our projects? I mean, we know what they're making.
1: Yeah, they're making petrochemicals, which you wouldn't immediately see the linkage to the built environment, right? But when you think about a barrel of petroleum, well, you guys probably don't think about a barrel of petroleum very often. But if you were to think about a barrel of petroleum, according to the U.S. Department of Energy, 6.8 gallons of a 42-gallon barrel of oil is used to make other products aside from fuel. So most people think of the fuel that's coming from the barrel. But let's do this guessing game. What other products, aside from fuel, do you think are being made from this barrel of petroleum? Any thoughts?
0: Yeah, I can hit a couple of them. From that 6.8 gallons of oil that comes from every 42-gallon barrel, I would imagine that you're going to get waterproofing and vapor barriers and membrane roofing and caulk and paint and things like that. But there's probably a lot more that comes from it.
2: I was going to say plastics.
1: Yeah, exactly. So basically anything that's a plastic-based material. You know, like I mentioned earlier, when you have a plastic, you need to add chemicals to it to make it more rigid, more flexible, etc. cetera. Plastic comes from petroleum. So it's anything in the built environment that's plastic-based. So whether it's adhesive, caulk, paints, coatings, gaskets, wall coverings, flooring is a huge one. So Really a huge percentage of what we're putting in our buildings are derived from petroleum-based products.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, like almost everything probably that a house is wrapped in between the studs and the outer finish, all that stuff is plastic, whatever it is, membranes and flashings and all that stuff.
1: I read this book recently called Plastic, A Toxic Love Story. I know it's so tantalizing. (laughs) Um, And I actually read it on the beach But anyhow, this book, it had this interesting part in it about the author was trying to go through an entire day without touching anything made of plastic. And so what she realized is it was impossible. And so she actually set about trying to list everything that she touched that was made of plastic. It was crazy the number of things that you would touch throughout a day that are made out of plastic. You guys should do that this afternoon.
0: I mean, my afternoon's already pretty full, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I would think that well, that would be really hard.
1: Maybe you can put "Plastic: The Toxic Love Story" on your reading list.
0: You know, I'd be happy to include it in the show notes. Light beach reading. You know, just something to kill some time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this: Obviously, Louisiana is not the only fence line. Community. There's others around the country. And one of them's that I know that you've mentioned before is in West Virginia.
1: Yeah. Uh, before I touch on West Virginia, one that's closer to home for us is obviously Houston. Mm-hmm. You know, huge petroleum-based industry there. And something that's really interesting is you know I've been working on this Hope Lodge project down in Houston. And we decided to get the water quality tested. It's designed to well building standards. So we decided to test the water quality. And when we received the results of the water quality test, you know, there's some obvious things that were a problem with the water, like turbidity and coliform and E. coli. But there was also vinyl chloride and benzene in the water that the guests potentially would have been drinking had we not tested the water. And vinyl chloride. AKA PVC used to make PVC vinyl flooring, all of the things that we put in our buildings. And then benzene is a derivative of crude oil. So, you know, it's interesting because that is a fence line community, but it actually was negatively impacting my project's drinking water. So what we did there is installed an advanced water filtration system. But we're constantly surrounded by these issues. And um, you mentioned West Virginia. There's um, a town in West Virginia called Parkersburg, and it's where DuPont manufactures PFOA and PFOS. And most people know that chemical is Teflon. Sure. You know, pots and pans are a lot of them are coated in Teflon. And, you know, you may have heard or had some sense that there was like some negativity around Teflon. There's a blockbuster movie that came out, I think, last year called Dark Waters that touched on this. And then there's a Netflix documentary called The Devil We Know. Uh And those both are really interesting in that they expose the impacts that the plant had on the community there. And how it relates back to the built environment is that these are the substances that we're applying to textiles or carpet or curtain walls blazing to make water roll off of the surfaces
0: you know I, as we've had this conversation as we've been chatting one of the things that kind of comes to my mind is so a lot of these products they make our lives easier so we put these pfoas and pfas's chemicals on here that helps with staining and water resistant and repellents and things like that my brain i can't help but think about like okay well i walked across carpet. Today. And I mean, just our entire conversation is I go, is it paralyzing? The more you know, the more do you like? I'm assuming you don't have pots and pants that have Teflon on them. Or is that something because you know more, you go, well, I'm smart about how I use them. Or do you go, well, I'm not using pots and pants with Teflon anymore? So how does that impact your daily life? I just want to, I know we have more to get into, but I I just kind of want to, I don't want to get this part too far down the road without going. All right, Tori, what do you do about this?
1: Yeah, I think you have to use this knowledge to empower yourselves and to realize that this is not an all or nothing situation. So hopefully you use this knowledge to make baby steps in your life. And I actually do still have pots and pans that have Teflon because I got them for my wedding and they were a huge expense. And, you know, I've thought about, okay, this is something that I do need to replace. I try to use my cast iron before I I would go to those other pots and pans, but I'm very cognizant about the kind of shampoo I use, the stuff that I bathe my children with. When I did a home renovation, I was very cognizant about the paint I was putting in the, the house. And so I think, again, it's not all or nothing. I think you should use this information to make changes in your life where you can and where it makes sense. You know, before we started recording, I was telling Andrew that I eat like crap. <laughs> I... <laughs> I'm so consumed with this in my day to day life with work and with kind of personal with the cosmetics and all that kind of stuff. But it's a balance. Like I love good food and I love butter and, you know, I love barbecue and all these things. So, like to me, it's a balance. You really have to make sure that you cut back in some areas where you don't in others. And that's reducing that body burden.
0: Yeah. And that's the key, right? Is to find a way to reduce it. Because eliminating it, I think, would be almost impossible.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, people tend to get overwhelmed by it, so they just don't do anything. That's not the way that it should be approached.
0: You know, I'll admit there are parts of me and my personality that falls into the, well, I just want to know. Because I still sit there and think about, there was a documentary on, like, what's really in your Haagen-Dazs ice cream. And I was like, I'm not watching that. (laughs) Right? Because I
2: like Haagen-Dazs ice cream. I don't want to know. Do you want to see how the hot dog is made? Uh, Yeah. Yes.
0: I like all those things. And so the way that I mentally cope is it's a different way of picking your battles. But that's a nice segue. And I want to jump forward a little bit due to time. And it really has to do with, as you know, we're all architects and we have an ethical obligation to protect health, safety and welfare of the public. I want to talk about material health and specifically, I think we're all AIA members here. and As the representative for the entire architectural profession, that is our professional group, have they said anything about material health?
1: So yes, the AIA ratified the resolution for urgent and sustained climate action back in September of 2019. And for those of us practicing here in Dallas, and and probably a lot of people outside of Dallas are probably very familiar with Betsy Del Monte. Mm Mm-hmm. She sponsored this resolution, and she's a well-known architect here in Dallas. She was the president of the AIA Dallas chapter previously, and she actually created the Sustainability Master's Program at SMU. So this was her baby. And what this resolution specifically reads, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read it verbatim so I don't screw it up. Sure. It says, obligations to the environment members should recognize and acknowledge the professional responsibilities they have to promote sustainable design and development in the natural and built environment, and to implement energy and resource-conscious design. Members shall consider with their clients the environmental effects of their project decisions. Building Materials Members should select and use building materials to minimize exposure to toxins and pollutants in the environment to promote environmental and human health and to reduce waste and pollution.
0: Seems pretty reasonable (laughs) to me.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cut and dry too.
0: Yeah. I kind of wonder how many of us, I'm trying to think how I can say this. I think there's a lot of us that are actually doing these things that we're trying to promote sustainable design and we're trying to be considerate and conscious about the materials that we're selecting and where they're coming from and how we're using them and so on and so forth. But it was rule 6.501 that the part that said members shall consider with their clients the environmental effects of their project decisions. That's the hardest part of that whole responsibility part.
1: Absolutely.
0: You know, because, and I hate to say this, is that I've long held the belief that architects will try to make, at least all the architects that I associate myself with, will generally go out of their way and they will make decisions to their own detriment to do what they believe is the right thing to do. And that's a fight that they pick all the time. The clients sometimes that we work with, they don't have a code of ethics unless their code of ethics is make money. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these decisions have financial ramifications to them that actually could lead them to saying... I don't want to do that because it's going to cost me more money to substitute product A with product product B.
1: Well, and that's a reasonable thing for them to say, honestly. So I have a great client in the American Cancer Society. It doesn't take a lot of convincing on why this is important. But I think when you do have clients that aren't as easily convinced, the best thing you can do is make it personal to them. At least that's what I've found in my experience is How do you really relate this information to your client in a personal way? Do they have children? Do they have babies that are going to be crawling across the vinyl floor? You know, it's I think that's how I've actually been able to sell some of this to architects, because frankly, a lot of architects and designers just feel like this is one more thing for them to have to do on a project. But once it starts becoming very personal, then it's much easier for people to buy into it.
0: Well, I also think that we have to, it's kind of like the more people that do it, the more we're going to end up pushing back on the manufacturers and the people who are using these products and making these products to do the thing that they probably know they should do now, even though that first step is hard. Because there's a a ramp up cost, there's R&D costs of, of changing something from what's in place and existing now and selling versus, okay, we need to do better. And I know the AIA is making this kind of a a code of ethics responsibility for its members. You know, that's their attempt to engage the 100,000 members or 90,000 members, however many AIA members there are, to become basically an extension and advocates for change in the profession. Like, we all need to do it in order to motivate manufacturers to take a step in this direction. At least that's my professional take on it.
1: Well, and I think that's why they've recognized more recently that they need to start developing more resources to prepare architects. And they need to start spearheading changes to the building codes and material guidelines and partnering with policymakers, et cetera, just so that it's not just words written on a piece of paper that they're actually providing resources to architects to start implementing some of these changes.
2: Yeah. And I I think it's a Something that's going to take a huge effort. It's going to take a lot of education and then a lot of pushback, you know, in order to make these things happen, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, and really having a unified message as architects is important to make sure we're all asking for the same thing from these manufacturers because it is a huge cost for manufacturers to reformulate and put in the research and development, employ green chemistry in their products. It's asking a lot. So, I think that's why it's so important that we're all asking for the same thing. Mm
0: -hmm. There's a section that I think that I want to spend the last chunk of our time together. And you have some information, Tori, that you passed on. It had to do with the idea of training the trainer. And it's a nice segue from literally what we just got through saying, how do you get people to put in position to make an impact and make a change and absorb data and then, you know, internalize it and make it embodied within the work that we do? So let's talk a little bit about the idea of training the trainer.
1: Yeah, so one thing I think it's important to say is that making one change on your project is much better than making no changes. So rather than make it this huge, overwhelming task, just do something. I think that's probably the most important takeaway from this. So in my practice at Perkins and Will, what we've asked designers to do is to pick their top 10 highest volume of finishes. So let's kind of backtrack. So back in the schematic design phase, we ask the designers to define some project goals. What systems are they putting in their building and what are the common products you start developing, whether you're gonna have concrete, steel, mass timber, et cetera. So you can start from that early design phase, making smart decisions. And then as you go through the design development, you might start pinning down what type of finishes. Oftentimes a narrative is a deliverable where you're saying we're going to have carpet tile, ceiling tile, we're going to have wall covering, resilient floor, etc. So as you start defining what those finish types are, you can make some smart decisions there. So we know that some floorings are healthier than other flooring types. So when you're in that early design phase, it's easy to make those decisions at that point in time so that later down the road, you're not backpedaling. And then as you move through the construction documents phase and you're starting to define what finishes you're specifying, that's where we really ask designers to pick the top 10 highest volume finishes and report are there transparency documents available for those finishes? If so, what do the transparency documents say? Like, let's say you have a vinyl flooring, for instance. Early in the design phase, you could have made the decision to have a non-vinyl flooring, which would have been the healthier option. But let's say, you know, your client really loves vinyl. So, (laughs) which is often the case. But when you get to that level of what vinyl flooring are you specifying, You can pick a vinyl flooring that doesn't have phthalates in it by just reviewing the transparency documents that the manufacturer provides. So that's kind of the way that we like to think about the process. You just start big picture, make smart decisions in the beginning. As you go through the design phase, that's when you start narrowing down those decisions. And then literally as you're defining your basis of design products, you're looking at what the chemical nature of those products are and keeping track of it. We actually keep track of it in a tracking spreadsheet at Perkinson Wall, and that's been really helpful on projects. The tracking spreadsheets can be modified if there's different rating systems being pursued. It's just a way for designers to maintain product specification through the life of the project through CA, making sure that the general contractor is actually giving them what they ask for.
0: I want to talk about the Perkins Will Library Protocol, but I have a question for Andrew about this at this point. When Tori was kind of walking us through schematic design and identifying project goals and then Dd, start looking at, okay, well, what kind of base materials are we talking about? Mm-hmm. And then you head into specifications during construction documents. For the work that you, the vast majority of the work that you did, you had to do You couldn't really specify a particular product, right? You had to keep it open so that... Yeah, I had
2: to have open specifications, yes.
0: Yeah, so I'm kind of curious as to, and this is public sector work, how you can avoid, like you go to the trouble to try to put together select materials that have a smaller impact to the built environment, but... The open specification process that a lot of public work has kind of just reintroduces and opens the door up for those products to work their way back in.
2: Yes and no. You can specify the quantities of those harmful chemicals that are allowed in the product without quote-unquote name-calling a specific product, but you can actually write specifications to that product basis, and so they have to meet an equivalent to that material, which sometimes means the only material is that material. Right. So, I mean, there's ways around making that happen, right, that you can do. To me, it's more in my public work. I find that the clients are harder to convince of doing those things than actually getting the specifications to work and getting people to bid it because there is at some times an economic impact. But you can work around the specifications. I mean, I got pretty adept at doing that. Some things are easy, low to no VOC paints. I mean, in the beginning, you could put it in there. Now, that's kind of a given, I think, on public projects. But, you know, when that first came up, you just put it in the specifications. And at that point, there was like two paints that they could use, but now there's a lot more. I think you just have to learn to work the specifications in a way that, that makes it possible.
1: Yeah. I think also it goes back to that example of early design phase. You can make a decision in the early design phase to choose the healthier product type. So you could specify, let's say a linoleum floor, and then all three of your products that are listed in the specs, if they're all three linoleum products, then you don't really have to worry as much about substitutions.
2: Yeah. I think that sometimes the other big issue with that is, let's say it's a municipality and they already have a standard and the standard is toxic as hell, right? And it's really bad. And so that's where I think you also end up in having some issues because, you know, they're used to using this product all the time and it's in all their facilities and you have to fight that battle sometimes, I think.
1: And that is absolutely true. That's where the education piece of this is so important. You know, sometimes you just have to educate your clients. You know, sometimes you're educating on on things that you don't even quite understand yourself. But that's why I was saying earlier, make it personal. And that usually resonates, especially like, let's say you're doing a K through 12 school. We don't want kids exposed to all these chemicals. And mm-hmm. that's oftentimes an easy way to make it personal.
0: There's a website out there, and this would be a nice time to kind of bring it up. It's the Mindful Materials website, which we'll put a link to it. And if you're looking for these sorts of materials as you're going through the selection process, this is a really good place to go find them all.
1: Yeah, so I love Mindful Materials and I love Sustainable Minds. Those are my two favorite websites to use to find materials. And they each kind of, they do something similar, but I use one for one thing and one for another. And then Material Bank has actually just launched their partnership with Mindful Materials, which is great because if you haven't used Material Bank before, you can curate an entire palette of materials on Material Bank website and they ship them to you carbon neutral overnight.
0: I didn't know about that. I knew about the Mindful Materials and I knew about Sustainable Minds. I wasn't aware of Material Bank. I know what I'm doing this afternoon. (laughs) Yeah, I just
2: pulled it up.
1: So they do all of their shipping carbon neutral. They've just launched that commitment recently. And if you start at Mindful Materials, there's a button you can click on. It's the yellow Material Bank logo, and it'll take you. So let's say you've picked a healthy material from Mindful Materials and you want to order a sample of it. You just click the Material Bank logo, and it'll take you to Material Bank where you can order the samples carbon neutral to be shipped overnight. You can do a lot of things on material bank. You can create pallets and boards and get all kinds of great technical data. You can get specs, pre populated specs for the finishes. It's a great website.
2: Yeah, I was not aware of the material bank website because I had to do all this stuff myself as a small firm owner. And I'd go back and redo my specifications every couple of years to try to keep up with some of the stuff and It's really hard. I mean, for a while, I was using a lot of lead language. Use that. I mean, not necessarily have lead certified products, but use that language from lead specifications to help with some of this stuff. But
1: Yeah, kind of as a guideline.
2: Yeah, but other times I just have to go find materials and like, all Mm -hmm. right, well, I'm just going to convert this specific material to a generic spec so that I could use it in projects.
0: Okay, so the materials library at Perkins and Will, you guys have a labeling process, right? That you put in, that's, I assume, is to help people find what they're looking for.
1: Exactly. We wanted to create this quick visual representation for our designers of which finishes are healthier than others. And so we have an entire team of people in our material performance task force that do this vetting of each of the finishes. And we just label the finishes that are in our library a good, better, or best rating. So there's certain finishes that we just don't allow in the library. So if a manufacturer will not provide us with a transparency document, then we just don't put those finishes in our library. Yeah. And then everything else that's in there, it gets a good, a better, or a best rating. And if it has no sticker, then that means that we've gotten a transparency document, but maybe the manufacturer didn't disclose what was in the finish or maybe they didn't provide a piece of that information to us to be able to really assess the finish. So like I said, it's just meant to be a quick visual representation to our designers so that when they're in the library, just grabbing binders, they might choose the one that's labeled better before they would choose one that's not labeled at all.
0: Sure. Because we do the same thing actually here at Boca Pal. We don't call them task force. We have a different name for it. But They have the same responsibility of going through the entire materials library and with all new incoming products to rate them and decide whether or not we keep them, whether we get rid of them, and if it's a good, better, best kind of scenario. It really is a passion project for the people that are on that group, for sure, because it's not really... It's not like it's easy to do. There's always several steps that goes along the way of like saying, Here's the material. Let's identify. Let's get all the information from the owner. We have to assess it. We have to figure out like, you know, does it meet the standards that we want to hold ourselves up to, especially when we want to present it to our client as a viable option for their project? I assume that you guys do something similar.
1: Yeah. And once you you know start learning how to read these transparency documents you can really geek out on this stuff <laughs> once you you start looking let's say at carpet tile and you're like oh my gosh that's in it holy cow what else is in it and then you want to know it's like once you know you cannot unknow
0: yeah <laughs> yeah yes, yep. that is true okay so the next question i had i like the idea of talking about the development of construction drawings and how all this information that we've been talking about makes its way in. In the data that you sent over to us, you included a couple of AI Dallas Healthy Materials Workshop and FAIR drawings as examples of how some of this information could get into the drawings. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, so the slide that you're referencing was actually like a charrette that we did in the workshop. But in terms of how you would maybe take the information that we've talked about and implement it back into your construction documents. It's really going back to that top 10 approach, like what are your highest volume finishes on the project? Just pick 10, pick five, however many you want to pick, pick one, do something. But as you're documenting that, let's say through a wall section, for instance, we know you're going to have, let's say, insulation in the wall cavity. So Let's look at that insulation and make sure that as we draw it with a little squiggly line, you need to make sure that as you go back to the spec section for insulation that you're actually putting in the spec section what you want it to be. Do you want it to be rigid mineral wool, which is what I like? Do you want to make sure it doesn't have formaldehyde in it? Make sure that stuff is in the spec. The drawings are meant to be a graphic representation of your design intent. And the specs are really where you talk about quality and the performance attributes. And I consider material health a performance attribute.
0: Yeah, I think that's a reasonable way to approach it. As we bring our conversation to a close, it's the idea that this is a complicated subject. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a ton of information to work in. But as you said, taking one step is better than zero steps. And then it's the idea of, how do you advance the overall objective which is to create healthier buildings and have a little bit more knowledge into the decisions that you make with the products that you select
1: yeah there's this principle known as the precautionary principle it's been around for a while but the notion is that when an activity raises a threat of a harm to human health or, or the environment take a precautionary measure you don't always know if something is going to be harmful and In that case, you would take precaution. That's what most reasonable people would do in their lives, right? Let's say you're going to go jump off a building, but you don't know if the bungee cords are safe. Most reasonable people would take precaution and say, well, I'm not going to jump off the building then.
2: (laughs) Some of us, yeah. I was thinking, I was going to (laughs) look and see
0: how far down it is.
2: (laughs) I think this is an interesting one for the difference between you and I, Bob, because And it's not taking a pessimistic look, but more of a a cautionary look and not being like overly optimistic that somewhere up the line somewhere somebody's made sure that this thing doesn't affect me or the environment negatively. The cautionary side of that is to try to think, well, maybe that hasn't happened and maybe I should be the point that starts to make those questions and, and wonder about that stuff.
1: I would have been in that same camp before I got into all this stuff and learned that there are so few regulations in place. There really is not that person of the line making sure that these products are safe. There's some manufacturers that really take this seriously and you kind of learn who those are through going through this process. But I think as you learn more about what's in these building materials, you feel less likely that somebody has actually made sure that they're safe.
0: Well, and on that, we're going to bring, I know, it (laughs) is scary. scary. (laughs) So on that, we're going to bring the educational portion of today's episode, The Dirty Side of Clean Buildings, to a close and move on to the would you rather question, which is particularly well-timed given the polar apocalypse that we're slowly clawing our way out of here in Texas. (laughs) Tori you've bravely agreed to participate in today's question and as per typical we're going to make you go first (laughs) since this is your first time on the show and then we tell you why you answered terribly uh, (laughs) can't wait I know it's a good time for everybody yeah
2: yeah you're gonna love
0: it (laughs) okay here we go would you rather be really cold or really hot and to clarify We're talking temperature, not attitude or physical appearances.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. My answer was going to go in a different direction. (laughs) Okay. Temperature. Well, I think that highly depends on what time of year you're asking me the question. And since you're asking me on the end of the polar vortex, snowmageddon, whatever you want to call it, I'm going to definitely go with hot and You know what? I have extreme wanderlust. So whenever I'm dreaming of my next vacation, I'm always dreaming of a hot destination.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. That's a reasonably correct answer.
1: (sighs) Yeah. I was going to say, why did I get it wrong?
0: No. You know why? Because Andrew's about to say cold. Yes. Okay. Andrew, what's your answer?
2: (laughs) And it's, would I rather be hot or cold, right? Really hot or really cold. (sighs) Okay.
0: Which suggests that there's some unpleasantness to both of
2: these. Yeah. And I guess my question, the way that I look at it, I guess, is my ability to modify the situation, which is why I would say really cold. Because I feel like if I'm really cold, I can at least put on more things and keep warm and like just keep putting on socks and clothes and things like that. But if you're hot, you can only get so unclothed (laughs) and you're still hot, right?
1: You can jump in a pool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, I guess. I don't know. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I guess it depends on if we're just talking like I'm going to be stuck in that there's no modification of whether I'm really hot or I'm really cold. I would probably say I would hot would be the answer because that's living in Texas that seems to be something I'm more used to and I guess I could bear being hot better than being cold cuz at least I don't you lose feeling in my extremities when it's really hot. So If that's the case, I would say maybe it is really hot. If I have to be perpetually in that state, if I can't modify it, then I would say hot.
1: I don't know about you, but my brain kind of quits functioning under both circumstances.
0: Well, I'm not sure mine ever existed in either circumstances. (laughs) You know, when I said, okay, here's going to be the question. I really asked the question because I've spent the last week, you know, in my house with no power. Yeah. The interior temperature was like around 40 degrees and I had all the clothes and blanket I could possibly want to wrap on myself. And you know what? It was the worst, you know, and all anybody did was just like sit and look at each other like complete losers the whole time. And I go, at least when it's really hot, it doesn't seem to shut me down. Hmm. Really cold just brought a halt to everything. And that's partly because that's where we live. It's atypical, you know, like the cabin project I did up in northern Wisconsin. It could be zero degrees outside and with no air running, it could be 50 inside the house. I mean, it's different windows. Everything's just kind of different. So our ability in our environment depends on where we're at. But if you just drop me in a vacuum somewhere, not technically a vacuum because then I couldn't breathe, but you know, just where there was no outside influences and you either go, you're really cold or you're really hot. It has to be hot. I think.
1: I don't think any of us would probably live in Texas if we just loved being cold
2: uh, <laughs> I like being cold I don't like being as cold as I was this week but again I I think it was probably maybe the fact of not having power that shut you down maybe more so Bob than, than it being cold I mean like for example if you had power and you were cold I think you would manage right I don't know well,
0: well it starts to speak about activities really yeah because yeah. because like for instance when it's really cold, like I've never heard anyone say oh my god, I love the cold. What they like is they like skiing or Mm -hmm. snowmobiling or Mm -hmm. they like things that happen in cold weather environments. Ice fishing.
1: Oh yeah, like if you're (laughs) sitting by a fire with a hot apple cider, yeah, it sounds magical.
0: (laughs) But you don't sound, you are not I'm not sure that you're cold when you're drinking your hot apple cider by the fire. You're standing out in the middle of a frozen lake.
1: You're modifying your situation.
0: That's right, to make it not be really cold. But I think that so when I, when I thought about the question, I went, all right, so let me compare this week when I was sitting in my house, fully dressed with nine layers of everything and things were starting to get scratchy because it's like stuff needs to breathe. And then I think, okay, now compare it to a couple of years ago when it was like 110 degrees outside and we lost power and there was no air conditioning. How did I exist? All the conditions were the same. I was literally in the same space, but hot was just kind of a drag. But it didn't stop me from doing anything cold was just like all I could focus on was how terrible this was and how do people do this like how do people sleep under bridges like my heart was like breaking for people that even couldn't didn't even get to 40 degrees and I don't worry about people when it's
2: really hot, but I do worry about people when it's really cold.
1: Yeah, this week was not a fun week.
2: Yeah, yeah, I. I mean, I I think, again, my initial answer was cold, right? Because I feel like, well, I can always put stuff on to get warmer. But if it was just a perpetual state, I think I would have to go with hot. But I think also that's because we're maybe more climactically adapted to that situation from having lived in Texas.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I would say the hotter you get and the more clothes you take off, the different type of hotter you get, if you know what I'm saying.
1: Thought this was just about temperature.
2: Maybe... (laughs) Maybe in my younger years. You know
0: what? It it was, but it's like considered it's a little extra side bonus for, <laughs> for some folks.
2: You know, but see, you guys, I mean, you have a pool, Bob. I don't know if you have a pool or not, Tori, but like for me, when it was that hot a few years ago and they were doing the rolling outages, it was miserable because, I mean, no power, there's no air movement. And, you know, again, where I live, it's humidities in the summer is 95%. It was miserable. That did disrupt my activities. The same almost because it was just you couldn't get cool and you're sweating and there's no air movement and it was just it's horrible. I think either extreme is really terrible to be quite honest, but I don't know. I guess we just have to pick hot.
0: Yeah, hot is the right answer. It's totally better. Mm, Yeah. I still even remember when so when my wife was in graduate school, like she didn't have any money and so she had a window unit and she would only turn it on when I would come down to visit, right? Because she didn't want me to suffer which was funny is because I'm from this area and she's not, she was born in England and lived in places like Denver. And you think that she'd be more predisposed to being on the cooler side than the hotter side, but it's just a mentality you get to here. It's hot. You're used to it. You're going to sweat. It's not that big a deal, but whenever you move outside of whatever is normal and customary, I think that's the direction you go. Like when I was in Wisconsin, they're all in the middle of a giant heat wave and they're acting like they're literally about to die. And it was 82 degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I go, are you kidding? This is like the best weather ever right now.
2: <laughs> you're just like, this is like fall. This is perfect.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's just, I guess, whatever you're used to, that's what you want. Like if yeah. you're in a warm weather place, you can handle warm and hot extremes better than if it goes the other direction. So I bet our northern friends answering this question would probably still choose cold over hot. I don't know. Could be wrong about that.
2: Hopefully, we'll find out.
0: Yeah, we'll find out. We
2: get some feedback.
0: Yeah, feedback. All right, so there you go. Another amazing show completed. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you for being with us today for episode 70 The Dirty Side of Clean Buildings. We would like to thank today's guest, architect, good sport, and fellow University of Texas alum, Tori Wickard, for joining us on today's episode and for bringing a bit of intelligence and clarity to a complicated topic.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. I had such a great time. I could talk about this for hours, but I don't want to bore you guys, so.
0: No, you know what? Tori, when we get out of this COVID nonsense, hopefully when we get out of this COVID nonsense, you know what I'd like? I'd like to go get a beer somewhere and just have a different type of conversation on the same topic, but one that lets me ask more like, what about this and what about that? And What about this and what about that? get a little bit more in the weeds than we were able to get into on today's show if you're up for that just let me know we'll make it happen
1: for sure and i've already had covid so i'll go anytime (laughs) nice (laughs) that was great i really did have a great time thank you for considering me to participate
2: yeah thanks for joining us story
0: we would also like to thank our media partners building design and construction for their ongoing support of the life of an architect podcast
2: If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe button so you can get winter refresh new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks.
0: And while you're there, please consider leaving us a comment
2: and I would greatly appreciate it
0: if you would leave us a five star hydrochlorofluorocarbons and chlorosulfonated polyethylene
2: rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, and photos from this glorious episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.